Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So you see this as a user engagement problem rather than a political problem. It's just a complete reframe of the problem itself. If you see this as he's political, she's political, this is bad, that's good. Those are all things that basically hold you back. And you're not going to look at it from the point of solving the problem. You're just going to vent continuously and it doesn't get you anywhere. But if you can state that as a problem statement, this is what my user is looking for or this is what my user is not doing, now it's a game because you need to get them to do something else. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truths playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Today, we're going to talk about office politics. The topic probably makes you cringe, even if you know politics are an inescapable part of organizational life. And as research shows, and many of you who have spent time in companies realize, your political skills are a bigger determinant to rising in organizations than your raw intelligence or even your hard work. When the topic of office politics comes up, my guest today did, for much of his career, do what many of us do. He avoided it. But he made an important shift in his thinking and approach. And rather than turn him into a corporate backstabber or change his core beliefs, this shift has made him even more effective and successful at what he and his team does and he loves and brings him to work every day. Innovation and producing blockbuster hits in the gaming industry and bringing those out into the world. I think hearing from our guest, Kashav Patani, VP of R&D at game developer Light & Wonder, is particularly important because he's an engineer, self-professed introvert, corporate entrepreneur, and still loves diving in and getting his hands dirty with technical issues. Kashav, Really thankful to have you on. Welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. So, Kashav, you live and breathe innovation. I didn't talk about your bio, but just to share a few things. You've worked on so many innovations. You started your career. You are from India. You started your career working in Tokyo, developing modems for IBM. 
Then you went to Iowa <laughs> uh, for Rockwell, where you were working on airline cockpit systems. And then we're one week short of being the first to patent Wi-Fi, uh, working in the Bay Area tech scene. And then that moved into numerous gaming companies, uh, lottery games for the past decade for Bally, which got acquired by Scientific Games, which got acquired by Light and Wonder, where you are VP right now. So very accomplished career. If I just asked you here at the beginning, what has been the piece of work of all of that that you're most proud of? Thanks again, Michael. Um, so if you had asked me that question probably five years ago or, or even before that, I, my answer would have been a more technical uh, technology-related innovation stuff. Today, if you ask me that, I, uh, I think the most rewarding uh, stuff I've done is probably seeing the people I mentored really succeed, succeed beyond what they ever imagined, and ending up in some top-notch companies or, you know, flourishing everywhere else. Some even went to NASA. So, so that, that's really proud, proud moment for me. So there's this deep theme of, of really caring and developing others that, that drives you. What we're going to talk about today is, and I know your expertise is around innovation, corporate entrepreneurship, and design thinking, but we're not going to go there because we're going to talk about office politics, as I mentioned in the, the introduction. And so we'll talk about personal lessons and then how you also apply them. If we go back, we first met at, at Stanford when you were doing executive education there, at which point you were already quite accomplished in your career and very successful. Can you paint a picture, right? Because you did make an inflection point after that and, and during the program. But you know, what was corporate life like for you kind of pre some of these, these shifts towards how you looked at office politics? So what was going well or maybe not as well? kind of prior to. So yeah, as you as you mentioned, as you alluded to earlier, I was pretty much a geek focusing on solving problems, you know, keep your head down, analyze, synthesize, solve the problem, which was a lot more fun than anything else. As you start growing in your career, everybody notices this, and I kept noticing it too. But it, it, while it was bothering that people who really are not very competent getting promoted because they could talk better or their close friends to the, the guy in power, stuff like that, but still, you know, the, the idea was always, well, you focus on work, this is what you enjoy. You tell yourself constantly, you know, think that, say that this is the right thing. That's the wrong thing. Focusing on anything other than problem solving, other than technology is probably a wrong thing. So you, you, you've posed yourself this dichotomy where it's wrong versus right rather than this is, this is going to help if I change my frame. And I, I didn't come to that until very late. I, it's actually, at Stanford is when, when I first started realizing that. And eventually, when I started talking to you and working with you, you know, all that stuff helped me change. But that, so prior to that change, it was all about just focus on what you're doing. And it was a lot of fun, too, while it was also hurting and, you know, you feel frustrated a lot. But at the same time, it, uh, it keeps you going while it also keeps you holding back. Uh, so it was, a, it was a lot of uh, friction between moving forward and going back kind of stuff. So that was what was going on with me uh, in, the, in the corporate life. Yeah, because I remember you talking about you were director, senior deck director at that time. You would always be in the room. You were always invited into the room with all the VPs. So you had all, all of your peers had kind of more senior titles. Um, you were delivering a lot of work for them, and that didn't always match up with your titles or compensation. Were there other, say, costs 
to or or even benefits to to keeping that your head down actually i used to think it's beneficial to not uh, not engage in those office politics and and not get into it because it always felt like well you focus on your work this is fun you tell yourself that this is going to get recognition at some point that stuff is going to be bad and all that but what you end up doing is you know it, it's it's frustration in the back end of it it's back of your mind you, you're constantly irritated and it, it reflects on you know day to day you just don't notice it you just go by you get by with everything and you go on with your life and you think you're going on but it it kind of starts to wear on you a little bit and especially when you start to see that people who are less competent than you and people who barely do anything get promoted and and keep moving forward and you you start to wonder what are you doing right or wrong and you start to blame the system blame someone else or constantly you blame the boss or you blame the company or you start looking for something else so this is how you naturally uh, keep coming at it rather than trying to address the problem and because you don't even know how to think about the problem at that point right i i don't think i would have figured out unless i uh, i was you know, exposed to jeff's class or, or you or somebody else i wouldn't have reframed it yeah so what what did shift your thinking if you kind of look back at your your transition was there a moment or something you heard read or did yourself that that got you to think differently about about that yeah, I, I would say it, it started at Stanford for sure. You know, Jeff, in Jeff's class very early on, and I'm talking about Professor Jeff Pfeffer uh, at Stanford, and his class very early on, he, he makes a statement. Um, you know, I think it was in the first class itself. He says being politically savvy is directly related to managerial performance. It almost doesn't make any sense when you first hear it. It's like, oh, that cannot be true. And, and you kind of discredit that in your mind saying, well, how is that true? Um you know, how is being politically savvy has anything to do with your performance at all? And it takes time to judge that statement. And, you know, you also allude to it in your book, right? You know, good performance doesn't guarantee that you'll maintain your position of power and poor performance doesn't mean that you'll necessarily lose your job, stuff like that. Uh, you know, it, it's basically starting to think about what is being said in that class. And, or, you know, even in this book, in your book, you also talk about those things. And, how does it actually make sense is, is the first thought that comes to you. And then as you go through that whole you know, learning session and everything else, eventually he throws so much research at people who are analytical like me that uh, it, it has to make sense and it starts to make sense. But none of it actually prepares you for the real world, though. That's all theoretical. It's, it, it's perfect in theory. Um, but when, it has, when you have to deliver that and you have to actually act on that, as an introvert, that's very challenging. Um, so... Um, it, it's the beginning of the, the whole transformation was uh, the course and Stanford exposure and, and talking to you and all that stuff, I would say. So you've painted a picture where you've you read some research because you're analytical and so didn't make sense, but you were saw the research. What were some of the things that you did or you shifted in your approach? You know, do you have any kind of specific examples of what did office politics then look like to you? Right. So one of the things that I started to shift uh, about was how you view this, because initially, as I said, it was always a dichotomy was good versus bad, evil versus, you know, good, that kind of stuff. You're looking at right and wrong. But when you when you change it to this is just a problem to solve, right, when you start looking at it as, well, what's the problem statement here? 
is he looking for power or in your assumption is he looking to dominate you or is, is she looking to do something and it's mostly men that dominate these scenes anyway and you know when, when you're thinking about well why is he not accepting what i'm saying because this makes a lot of sense this i proved it logically this is the right way to do it and yet he doesn't want to move forward with it right this is one of the very early things most of the you know beginning managers start to face uh, or leads at lead level start to face this it's always some insecurity or something is what you dismiss as rather than you think of this as uh, you know it's a problem he's trying to solve something and then as you start to dig into it you know you you start to figure out that there there's an easier way to solve this if you can you know scale back the emotion a little bit and start looking at it objectively and once you start looking at it objectively you start to think well the, the problem is he's a skeptic or a cynic about this now how do you change the skeptic right and and one of the things that we 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 read about in change management and all this power like power literature is that the idea that you you figure out your your believers your your followers or you know this is one of the things you help me most with you know i know a lot of people in at my work i i have a lot of influence with many people a lot of respect but i never leveraged any of it uh, or, or used it in any way and uh and when you start to consciously think about it initially it kind of makes it, it makes you very really uncomfortable right you, you feel like you're doing something you shouldn't be doing but you know in the end you're you're trying to solve a problem so i started to think about it as an experiment where well this is the problem statement and i'm let me try to solve it this way if it works it works if not i have to figure out something and then you say okay he's a skeptic let's assume he's a skeptic and then try to find a believer or someone else find the person they trust and then talk to them and see if you can influence in an indirect way and they start to shift or they start to solidify whatever that you know, outcome may be but in the end you you're starting to see some result of this experiment now it becomes fun because it's not a politics anymore it's a, it's a live experiment in behavioral science so you start to see that you're, you're analytical you you're this geeky guy who's trying to do all these things so all of this thing comes to you know on paper you're experimenting with the humans and their behavior and it becomes really uh, less stressful more than anything i mean it's not zero stress it it will still stressful because if someone thinks you're playing politics or running experiments on them they're going to be really pissed at you but when you start to see that finding a believer and finding a follower that you have and uh, you know trying to encircle them uh, the skeptics with these people who believe in you or people who who support you who can promote you and that helps a lot it helps a lot in many ways yeah yeah and you you i mean you do come from the gaming or the gaming development industry. And so I I remember you saying once I thought it was very insightful comment that you kind of viewed this as a game and how to solve it which goes into your previous comment. Can you say more about that? Right. So, yeah, when you start to think about, you know, how the what's the problem statement, right? You know, when you think about games and gaming, you're thinking about, you know, how do I get the player to stay engaged, right? well he won a certain number of coins or he won some credits or he won some you know flags or something some badges now that's just the first level of xp experience points he's getting now if he gets if the player gets a certain number of points it's just boring after that you know he he needs to get to the next level of challenge so it's the same thing you try and circle someone with with the idea first you go talk to them about your idea being better than theirs or you want to get something out of them whatever it's ultimately all about resources versus power and you know all those things right so so when you approach that with uh, okay i'm going to try this let's see what happens and you see that the result is either good or bad now what you're thinking is the player had bad experience i have to change the experience for the player to be more positive so they shift and they stay more engaged 
because for me, that player who is a politician on the other side has to stay engaged in my game so he can continue to play this. And I, I don't mean it in a bad way. I want to create that experience for them so they shift their mind and stay engaged with me and get the result together. Because ultimately, uh, if you don't have any, even if you have bad agendas, if you don't want to use it for bad purposes, it's it's all going to work out well in the end if they believe in you and you believe in them. And, and it's, if it's a meritocracy, it'll work well. If it's not, it's probably not the right place for you to continue for very long. And, uh, you know, that might even be helpful. But, uh, you know, people just blame toxicity for everything because a person disagrees with them or a person doesn't give them what they want. I see it as, well, let's find the problem statement. What is the highest level problem? Let's abstract it out and then start digging in. And so you're now making it a multi-level game basically that's how we design a game right multi-level player uh, you know role-playing game so so you know you start to think about it like that uh, and then you dig and you dig and your next level uh, then at some point either they believe in you or you believe in them you could be convinced too right or you know you, you move on but it, it doesn't hurt you as bad as if you keep you know calling them names or you know saying things that hurt you or them whatever it, it doesn't move it forward. It just keeps you in a circle that doesn't help you. I love that analogy and, you know, talking about it as a multi-level game and keeping people engaged. You mentioned that keeping people engaged means, and this is humans we're dealing with. So you have called yourself a, an introvert and you feel you know very introverted. So going out and engaging people for those out there who think of themselves as introvert can be very exhausting. And so was going and collecting information, keeping people engaged, moving them up the multi-level game, how did you deal with that? It is exhausting. It still, it still is exhausting. I, I, I would not say it's going to be easy, but it's not as stressful because introverts get exhausted just getting through the day anyway. Um, you, you just work in an office space, you're exhausted by the end of the day. Uh, especially if you're in a managerial role, you actually have to talk to people. You cannot avoid that. As you start to develop that skill set where you can talk to people, even if you're exhausted by the end of the day, you want this sense of achievement. So that's what you're looking for. And that's what is actually going to drive you. So when you're looking for, for that satisfaction or whatnot, you cannot avoid engaging with people. And, and if you're trying to design games or if you're trying to do a product that engages users in the end, you have to inter interact with users at some point. And a good designer always starts with the user, right? You cannot avoid the user. If you're going to avoid user, you shouldn't be in designing products or uh, games for people, right? So, so you do have to interact at some level. So it, it comes with the, the territory of being in R&D, right? You have to ultimately create a product for your end user. And user engagement is, is very critical in any product, any whether it's game or games or any other kind of product, right? So, so you see this as a user engagement problem rather than a political problem. It's just a sort of complete reframe of the problem itself. If you see this as he's political, she's political, this is bad, that's good, those are all things that basically hold you back. And you're not going to look at it from the point of solving the problem. You're just going to vent continuously, and it doesn't get you anywhere. But if you can state that as a problem statement, this is what my user is looking for, or this is what my user is not doing, now it's a game. Because you need to get them to do something else. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. To take this, you know, you abstract it up, but then to take it down to 
real brass tacks. You have an example of how you've done this. I know you've had conflicts is inevitable over kind of where resources get allocated. And you had some very powerful conversations with key stakeholders, framed stuff in specific ways, and ended up with huge budgets <laughs> and resources. But can you share a little bit about, you know, so people can kind of connect this to how it actually works or works for you? Yeah, I think I, I also, I mean, I have a new insight, probably we discussed it. I don't know if I discussed this one with you lately, but uh, like one of the things you say, and even in subtle books, they say is uh, individuals who are competing for advancement, you know, they bend the rules or they break the rules, you know, a fair play and stuff like that. Um, but when you think about it, the rules that they're breaking are actually rules that are established to maintain the status quo, right? Rules are generally established to maintain the status quo. Bending or breaking the rules means changing the status quo. Now, isn't that innovation, right? It is technically innovation. Innovation is changing status quo. So ultimately, if, if you frame the problem as it's office politics, it is technically office politics. I mean, not technically, it's literally office politics. But from a te technical standpoint, it is a innovation problem is how I frame it sometimes. And okay, let's see what's the status quo here. What is, what is the rule we're trying to break here? And one of the golden rules of breaking rules is that you understand why the rule exists. And once you get to that point uh, and understand why the rule exists and why are they breaking it, why can't you break it, you clearly realize that they break the rules because they understand how it's going to impact them. You just think the rule exists, let's not touch it. So you, you again, put it in a frame that it's very difficult for you to break. But when you see it as, well, this is a status quo. What is it that I can do to change the status quo? Well, then you have to break the rule or change the rule. Um, so that is innovation in, in, in many senses, right? Yeah. So uh, to give you a quick example, I got this team and a project not just a project, a market actually, that um, we're doing very poorly. You know, it, it's it's uh, not our best market. And, you know, it was very challenging to succeed in that market. But if you remember the rule, it's uh, the people that are closest to the boss always get the best projects. So if they give you something, it's usually the worst project. So they're not going to give you the best one uh, because you're the guy who sits quietly and does no complaints and is not complaining. So um, it does all the work. So, you know, in that case, when you get the project, you can throw a tantrum and then you say this is unfair, blah, 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 because it's not a great project to work on. But I took that project on because it was just challenging. Again, the problem statement I was looking for is why are we losing more than anything? Ignore what he's trying to do in that. And why, why are we continuously losing? So it, it was a gradual decline in that market over, over, over a decade almost. And uh, it was an interesting problem. So ignore what he's doing and forget what, what they're trying to achieve. Let's just look at it. So it took me a while, almost a year, to actually uncover the real root, root cause of the problem. Multiple problems existed, and I had to come back. Now, here's the real challenge. Because when I come back and propose a solution, nobody wants to accept it, right? Because they dismiss the problem, first of all. And two is, this is not a, it's a declining market, whatever. And on top of that, you know, you're now trying to propose something that they never tried to think about, right? So for them, it's like, oh, you're trying to solve this problem. We all dismiss this. So you're the genius, you think you can solve the problem. That's the attitude too. So you have a problem with your peers, you have a problem with your superiors. And you know mostly people are non-believers, right? At that point when you're trying to say that this declining market, I will change. It's a massive problem when you think about it. Uh, but you know, it took me almost a year, another year since I found a solution actually on the root cause, many root causes actually. And it needed a multifaceted solution. Like multiple people in multiple departments have to adjust multiple things. 
Now that's right for office politics, right? You're right. asking people to change, and and uh, so it was it was a really fascinating journey. And four years later, I mean, it took me about a year and a half to convince people. I finally had to go to the CEO, like skip multiple levels, and I cannot just go, right? It's office. Uh, it, it's going to be seen as really insubordination. So find chances in a conference uh, when you're at a conference or when you're at a meeting or something, and talk to the CEO in a sidebar conversation. Stuff like that happened, and then slowly, bit by bit, I was able to push this agenda where they they brought in a new person to look at it differently on one piece of the problem. And when he started looking at it, I proposed my idea because he didn't have any history of any of the biases. He was able to make a decision. That's all I needed to go forward with the rest of the pieces. And eventually, it took a while, but uh, you know, you deal with every one of the people that are involved in that in similar ways. But it took me almost two years after that point where I could actually get the whole product out, finish the whole thing, get the product out, and show the success. And again, as office politics talk about continuously, when it's successful, many people will come in. Right, The first, very first stage of success, some good people will catch on that, yes, this is going to work. And then you, you get believers. And then you encircle the believer, you know, non-believers and the skeptics with all these people, and it becomes really good. Today, it's actually a very phenomenal product. We are growing at 100% rate in that market that was declining for so long. And it, it's, a, it's a great experience. I have many examples like that. Uh, but uh, again, it all started with the idea that I stopped framing this as office politics to begin with. Yeah. And, and it sounds like being very strategic about who you're looking at as the believers, how to bring them on board, how to en- engage them to use your analogy from earlier. It's, it, it's just that you, you don't know a lot of these things on how to actually work on up front. You can, you can think you can be very strategic and then know the exact plan. This is where I, I would bring design thinking into play, design thinking applied to office politics. So you would try something and it may or may not work, but you learn the lessons, go back and refactor the thing and then go back again and then go back again. And a bit by bit, this is now really a, a very fascinating game and you're building a game, right? And, and that's how you get it. Because I tried that with many people until I, I had the sidebar conversation with the CEO who was able to make a quick decision. Because he also struggled with something. And again, uh, talking about your book and Jeff's books, uh, you, you mentioned this multiple times where uh, you, know, you need to find what they want. It's not what you want. Nobody cares about what you want. It's important to understand what they want. And the CEO was struggling with something. And then it was just you know two birds with one stone kind of concept. I said, hey, how, how, do you, how about this? And he immediately jumped on it and made a decision. It helped me. Forget what it helped him or not, but it helped me, right? So... Yeah, I want to ask you about how, I I mean, there's numerous examples in my book and I've spent time, you know, in innovation and design thinking myself. But if you think about how do you find out what someone wants, sometimes they will tell you or it's obvious, but sometimes you have to observe them. And and I know you are very good at this because you look at users to develop your games and there's the iteration part. Is there uh, any technique that you have found effective to really determine what people's needs or, or wants are, even ones they won't articulate? Yeah, one of the things you learn in design thinking is how to interview people and how to find insights, right? You um, you have this very you know, deep three-level interview process you go through to, to get user insights. And, you know, you, you first set up the whole thing and you get them to be, you know, ease, ease up with you. And then eventually you start laying the foundation for your stuff. You don't have to go through that level with the CEO or whatnot. You don't have time, that much time. But at that level, they generally tell you. If it's very high level, they generally may not tell you directly, but they'll, they're making statements. They're, 
they're talking to people and you can observe those things very easily at a lower level or your peer level they're very you know conservative or they won't try to reveal because it's it's a power issue and all whatnot but that's where you ask questions because ultimately in design thinking you're not thinking about uh, your user giving you exact solution right you're not your user is never going to give you that it's your job to get the insight out of what the user is telling you so if you practice it enough times you will come up with the really good questions that will engage them. And this is what I tell everybody. Like if, if you ask a question and the other person is talking for 10 minutes, it's a great question. If you ask a question and finish an answer in 30 seconds, bad question. Do you have a favorite question that you ask? Um, actually, there's a few. I, I, I start with, uh, you know, I start with the ideal situation for them. What, what's your ideal situation look like? Which is not a good question. Design thinking tells you not to ask that, that type of question. But people love to talk about what they want when you talk and ask them. And, and if you give them all the power in the world saying that if, if, as if they're the ones who's going to save the world and you say that, how would you fix this? Or what would you do? And they love to talk. And you make it even more personal, right? You know, what would this so-and-so use their name and say so-and-so do in this situation? And then it pops up, pops them up, you know, and it, it feels like a praise. And then they engage in that conversation a lot. And they'll they'll continue to talk. And and one thing I, I noticed is as an introvert, it's very easy for me to shut up anytime. People, other people seem to want to talk a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's it's less exhausting for you. Listening is easier than talking, so it makes it easy. Yeah, and this is the uh, the rule in sales too, right? The best sales reps actually talk less and they listen more. It's a very powerful skill, particularly if you can pull out these insights through great questions. I think those are some great ones you raised. Kashav, as we talked about this, I mean, it's very easy to get sucked into the tactics and the, okay, this is interesting around, you know, what you're doing. But there's this part here, you know, you'd never lose sight of kind of the big picture. Um, you know, you focus innovation management, product management, manage studios around the world and technical teams. And, I'm, and I want to ask you this because innovation, we typically don't associate with large companies. You're very good at it in large companies. And, and we often, or some of the conventional wisdom is, well, innovation is better to be isolated and not get sucked into the politics because it'll shut you down. And so as, I, as we're, we're talking about this, why then is if we call it engaging in politics, important if you are innovating in a company? Is there a, a reason why you know not engaging it is detrimental? I would say yes, yeah, obviously. I mean, at this point, it's obvious to me it's detrimental if you're not engaging because there's no innovation that happens in isolation. You cannot be one person that you think, you know, you're sitting in one corner of the building and you can come up with brilliant ideas. Uh, I don't think that exists. At least most of the literature also proves that that doesn't exist. There may be one-off geniuses somewhere sitting in some parts of the world, but most companies don't have those. Um, so you want to, you have to harness the collective wisdom of everybody on your team. And if your team needs to follow you, you need to be seen as powerful. They need to trust you that you can move it forward. You, if you cannot move it forward, they're going to go find some other leader very quickly. And if they have to trust you, they need to see that you can bring things or you can bring work or you can bring you know big problems to solve, whatever that engages them. So you need to bring that, that the idea of you know a, a sense of safety for your team, a sense of achievement for your team. And you cannot bring that if they see you as a weakling, right? Nobody respects someone who cannot stand up for themselves. 
and and people behind you and, and they're, they're constantly looking at you and evaluating right they may not be you know judging you in the moment to moment but they're in their minds they're processing this information subconsciously or consciously whether you are the person that they should stand behind and if you are someone that is taken for a ride if you're someone that is you know stepped over constantly the whole team is going to feel exactly that way that they are being stepped over they're being undermined and all so how is it good for anyone i mean nobody likes to be in that position right so you will be you know automatically losing your team or the faith of your team at some point so uh, engaging in it is definitely the right thing to do and i'm not saying you know become this uh, powerful fighter that you're not uh, you if you're an introvert you're obviously not a powerful fighter uh, so don't think that you can change that quickly I don't know maybe people can change I haven't so you have to figure out a way how to deal with it and whether you figure it out or not you cannot escape it right that that's what I would I would say yeah you know related to that in our previous conversations you you've made a comment about to this point around engaging people like to talk about themselves they do enjoy praise and you know you said you have used that judiciously and strategically how do you do that? Because, you know, as soon as you say you start praising people, a lot of people will say, oh, you're flattering them. It's fake. It feels very disingenuous and icky where you're like, you know, kissing butt is sometimes used. How do you think about that? Or when people on your team and you tell them, hey, we've got to engage, you've got to, you know, talk to these stakeholders. How do you think about that? What works? Actually, a very interesting question. Even I remember in the class uh, with Jeff and, and later on too, um, there was a lot of discussion on the topic because people get turned off by this idea of I have to go praise someone. Um, I don't know if it's because it's it hurts your own ego or if, it, if it's because you, know, you feel it's disingenuous or if it's something else. And most of the time, the good people are um, actually, when I say good people, I'm talking about very competent people but also introverts. Because it's it's something really that comes very easy to extroverts, I think. At least I feel that way. Um, but for introverts, it's a very challenging thing. Because one, you feel like your competency should speak for itself. You feel like your work should speak for itself. You don't want to go speak for yourself. You don't want to also go praise someone when you don't think they deserve it. And and again, you you put this in a right versus wrong frame of mind, and that's that's not good. But the way I would do, I actually have been doing all along is. Because it resolved in my mind at some point. I, I forgot what was it that changed. But it's definitely after the Stanford experience and everything else and discussing with you. And one of the things I do is I genuinely look at what they're saying and what is it that I can get behind. Because the concept you may not get behind, the solution you may not get behind. Maybe the style in which they delivered or maybe you know something else. Maybe their presentation was so beautiful. So you can comment on that. Right. Hey, that's a great presentation. You can genuinely say that. That's a beautiful presentation. How can I learn how to do this? I don't care about the concept. I don't care about the content of your presentation, but you don't have to mention it. But I do want to mention that this is a great presentation. Your graphics are amazing. How did you get those? Where did you get those? Now you're engaging them again. Engaging. You're also praising them, right? It makes them feel good. Uh, so there's always something. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. That there's no point I found where I couldn't find, even if, if I disagree with them completely, even if I think this is complete BS, I still find something that they did. It, it could be just the way they held the mic when they're talking, right? It doesn't matter what it is, uh, but you can still praise them about something. And if we can find that, it's only because 
you're not letting your judgment come into play. You talk about this in, in your book and you know, in, in the class, Jeff also mentions it. It's, it's that you prejudge things. You, you already made up your mind that this guy's an idiot. I don't want to listen to him. But that doesn't help. You have to, you need to, you need his support or you need something from him or, you know, whatever, why, whatever else is the reason why you're engaged with him in the politics. And so you need that support. So you can find something if you just push that judgment aside and start looking at it objectively and what is there in this whole thing that I can genuinely like. And you will find something. And I haven't come to a situation where I've never found anything in any situation actually so far. Yeah, there's this whole point of kind of learning from others. And you actually made a comment at one point uh, that I liked a lot, which was, you know, go find the people who are skilled at this, whether you like them or not, and kind of study them. Again, kind of goes back to your user observation and so forth. And, and um, can you say more about that or any? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's funny you asked that question because uh, the, the reason I made that statement at the time is this one person I was working with, um, I was, you know, I had no choice but to work with was very incompetent in that role. And this person has been there for a long time. So they checked out, no, no real value add to the team or anything. So at that point, um, and also, you know, not being able to do basic functionality of, of their job. So one thing I noticed uh, is in the meetings, this person would come in and act very angry, anger, you know, they, they just, protrude anger at everything. Um, you know, they, they, I mean, this person would always start with, I hate when people do this. I cannot believe people did this. And everybody thinks that there is some level of competence, especially if you're a new person, you would judge that as this person is this upset means he, he or she knows um, what what's actually happening on the ground, the depth of it. It's, it they disagree with it so much. But Initially, I never I would have understood the, the point that they were using anger uh, as a mechanism to to use, you know, to gain more power. Uh, I, it never occurred to me at all. But after the class and everything else, I sit in these meetings and I go, "Wow, this is brilliant! I can learn from uh-huh. her." So you totally flipped that around. <laughs> you know, and... how, how I can leverage? Yeah, you know, until then it was very annoying to you, right? It was very annoying to me that you don't know anything. Why are you acting? So- so badly about this situation i know about this and i'm not this upset but but when you actually you know see that it amazes you the level of sophistication that goes into that level of acting and the the way they project power with this anger everyone around is now trying to placate them they forget asking the competency questions Right, you're you're all focused on how can I bring the anger down, the temperature down. So half the meeting goes into placating this person. Right, it's it's a it's a phenomenal thing to watch. So you watch and you learn. And it's hard for you to act in the same exact way, but when you're genuinely angry, don't hold back. Is what I realized. I love that when you're genuinely angry, don't hold back. So you know, thinking about it strategically and how it can be used, learning from that person you would have otherwise um, dismissed. Any question I, I didn't ask or you'd like to add here to the to the conversation? If I have to end with something, I would say, after all these things, after all these years, I still uh, deal with it. In fact, I'm right now in the middle of a massive, massive uh, uh, political fight. Uh, and, it, and I'm not super stressed about it. And I actually, you know, I'm handling the team that's stressed about it in a way. 
that they can cope with it. So it's never going to end. So so get used to it and become good at it. Yeah, get used to it, become good at it. And this comment you made, which I've noticed you talked about several years after you went through this transformation, is that politics no longer stresses me out. It was a big stressor for you. And now, okay, it's part of what I do. Have to do it if we want to get things done. And I love the analogy here of framing it as, you know, a game and reframing the problem and approaching it that way. Very, very insightful. So thank you, Kashav. And, and if people want to uh, connect or learn more about you or what you do, what is the best way to do that? LinkedIn, I would say. Great. We'll put your LinkedIn there in the show notes. Kashav, I know you're traveling around the world. And thank you also for connecting to us from India today, uh, one of your global stops. Um, so very much appreciate uh, you sharing your time in your evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.